Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Word down your way. Testing. Two, two. Welcome to another Word Down Your Way. If you're out and about this spring and summer in, in 2024, and you used to read Smash Hits back in the 80s, you'll find... You, you, you're about to run across loads of people you should read about in Smash Hits in the 80s. Claire Gregor will, will undoubtedly be out there. Toya Wilcox. Martin Fry might be coming your way, playing the whole of the ABC catalogue with a massive orchestra. And also, former member of the Communards, Richard Coles, will very likely be in your village hall as part of what, what he self-effacingly calls his borderline national trink tour. Um, we're delighted to talk to him about this. Richard, hello, welcome. Hello, nice to see you again. It's been a while. It has been a while. Lovely to see you. And oh, lovely to see you. <laughs> <laughs> this could go on for a while. <laughs> <laughs> right, <Excellent>. Bye. <laughs> it's a love fest, yeah. <laughs> so here we like to talk about um, experiences of live entertainment in all its various different forms. And very often they're musicians, but, but in your case it's musician turned, well, talker, vicar, formerly a vicar and so forth, uh, now now going out talking to people, presumably. I'm intrigued in all, about all this. But going back, can you remember when you first saw live entertainment as a child? I can. It was Morecambe and Wise at the Kettering Granada. Oh, fantastic. oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so I must have been about 10, I think. And for some reason, Morecambe and Wise came to Kettering which was, I mean, nobody came to Kettering. People from Kettering didn't come to Kettering. <laughs> and yet, for one night only, Morecambe and Wise played the Kettering Granada. And I remember going to see it. It was the first time I'd ever seen famous people in real life, if you see what I mean. 
And uh, the best thing about it was, you remember Arthur, who played the mouth organ? Arthur English. Yeah, mm-hmm. do you remember they used to start playing yes. the mouth organ, they'd cut, you never got to hear him. Not now, Arthur. But he got to play a whole tune. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So that was very, very exciting, um, seeing Morecambe and Wise. And then the first band I ever saw, gosh, who was it? It would have been some some local terrible um, band either in Milton Keynes or Northampton where there was a lively sort of punk scene happening. I saw Bauerhaus in the late 70s in Northampton. I think that was the first band I saw that people had actually bought records by. Right. And then John Otway. I remember seeing John Otway. And um, do you remember a band called the 4B2s? Yes. Oh, yeah. Jimmy. Yeah, Johnny, Johnny Lydon. Jim, Jimmy Lydon was Johnny Lydon's brother, I think. Was that right? Yeah, that's right. Sure. Was the yeah, surely. He only had one eye. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember them being quite cyclopic in one way or another, but that would that would explain it. So where I was, there was a very lively um, kind of second-tier punk scene, I think, because if you lived in Kettering or Northampton, well, those are the places where punk, you know, thrived, wasn't it? The sort of... Boring suburbs, really. So, caught a bit of that. But my actually, sort of my musical palette was quite odd because I was a chorister when I was a kid. So, actually, lots of the music I was listening to and performing was church music. And also, I was a pianist, so uh, I was listening to lots of classical music as well. Um, so, it was quite a varied diet. My dad would take me to London for concerts and things at the Albert Hall. He tells this story when... When I was eight, he took me to... It was Sir Charles McCarris. Um, I think it was the RPO. where He was conducting Beethoven 7th. Apparently, I was so moved by it, I stood on my chair and started conducting along. Oh. <laughs> well, not for long, because I think my father's embarrassment would have curtailed my early experiments in conducting. Right. So it was a very sort of mixed mixed bag, really. Uh, nothing wrong with that at all. Um, can you remember any of the jokes that Malcolm or Wise told? No, not a single one. The only thing I remember was they had different curtains, and that seemed a bit wrong. And Arthur playing an entire tune. Yes. And then also we went to the Wimpy. There was a queue for the Wimpy. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. We did go to the Wimpy. I was intrigued to look at your tour dates uh, because you've been on tour since the end of last year, one way or another. And I think you played the Eric Morecambe Centre in um, in Harpenden, didn't you? you? did, yeah. Wait, have you been there? No, I had never realised it existed. I yeah, know no, it was the leisure centre in Harpenden, oh. but then the leisure centre, I think perhaps people of Harpenden took their leisure elsewhere. Maybe they all go skiing, it looks like they might. <laughs> so they converted the leisure centre into a theatre, which is lovely, only a couple of years ago, actually, and named it after the great Eric Walker, whose portrait hangs in the foyer. But it has, you do slightly feel that someone's bolted some seats in a badminton court, which indeed <laughs> is kind of what they have done. And backstage, there's more than a suggestion of the locker room. Do you know that story about uh, Sir Robert Helpman on tour in America? No, go on. So Sir Robert Helpman of the Royal Ballet. They were, Royal Ballet was absolutely the height of its thing, and they were on tour in America. Because it was the Royal Ballet, they were booked into, like, sports venues and stadiums and things. So he turned up with his dresser at this stadium and went backstage for a dressing room, but he found instead literally a sort of player's changing room with a sort of 60-watt bulb overhead. (laughs) And so the dresser said, also, Robert, I'll see what I can do for you. And came back to find him standing on a chair underneath this bulb with a mirror putting on his makeup, saying, my dear, how do these referees fucking manage? 
<laughs> so it feels a bit like that. So on the kind of touring circuit that you've been doing, you you do, you are playing some quite unexpected places, aren't you? You don't know what they're like, presumably, until you get there. Is that the case? That's true. I mean, it's an because you know I've toured in a band um, in the eighties, so the rhythm of it and the sort of um, you never know quite what you're going to get thing I've been through before, and also as a vicar, uh, yes. often you're invited to preach in all sorts of places very often. So that, that uh, I'm sort of prepared for anything. Really, actually, I love it. I think one of the, I mean, I'm really nosy, and one of the things I really love doing is dropping down in somebody else's world. And just sort of wandering around and seeing what's happening in Swindon or Aberdeen or Carmarthen or Newbury or wherever it might be. Yeah. Have you ever seen, have you seen Al Murray? He he must play a lot of the same kind of places. He always well, posts pictures on uh, Instagram of it, it, it was his attempts to get his kettle under the tap in the tiny sink. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> but the thing I've <laughs> discovered um, is that there are never any forks in a green room. It's just a weird thing. They're never a fork. And so my my partner, Richard, who's an actor, I said to him, do you know what? There are never any forks in the green room. He said, no, there never are. And I said, why? And he said, because actors pinch them to go and eat their salad from their Tupperware boxes in their dressing rooms and never take them back. So he said, you need a travelling spork. So one of the tokens of our burgeoning relationship is that I now have two sporks. I have a metal spork for domestic travel and then a bamboo spork if I have to go on an airport. <laughs> a bamboo spork. That's a bamboo perfect. spork. That's great. So, to go, going back to your vicaring briefly, which uh, you're a vicar a long while. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you, 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 you just turn up places. You're just used to having to deal with whatever, whatever people are in front of you in whatever room you are. Is that the case? Well, it would be... I mean, people sort of interested in my story because it was an unusual one, I think. And so I would often get invited to say, would you go and talk to various groups? And the groups are usually the same. And you would have to sort of have some knowledge of that. But I remember doing one, it was the Wollaston Over 60s Methodist Ladies Fellowship, fine <laughs> body of women. And I went to talk to them and they said, would you talk about your pop star to pulpit thing? And I went, yes, Okay. So I talked to the ladies of the over 60s Methodist Ladies Fellowship and they were charming, um, but they weren't really fully up to speed with the history of pop music in Britain in the 1980s. I, so to the usual, I talked about having met Jimmy Somerville and blah, 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 blah. And I kind of sensed that I'd lost the room at one point. They looked a bit aghast. And at the end, I said to, so I said, any questions? And a lady shyly put her hand up and I said, what's that? She said, what was he like? And I said, who would you say? Jimmy Savile. <laughs> was it Jimmy Savile? Jimmy Somerville. And so you have to remember that the people who would recognise the stuff you're talking about belong to a particular demographic. And there's yes. now, well, not many people north of it because we're all old, but there's a lot of people south of it who don't necessarily remember the music of the 1980s and your references to people like Cyril Fletcher on That's Life or James Burke. <laughs> yes. Just vanish with the nothingness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you remember the first time that you played in a group? You remember your first performance as pre because you joined Bronski Beat at one point. I think. But before oh, I was that. in bands before that. My first band was at school. We were a punk band called Xerox because we copied everything. Obviously, uh, Good, my brother was Xerox. the bass player. 
Yeah. And I played the keyboards. Well, I played the piano, first of all, but then the headmaster uh, said I had to stop playing the piano because it was a classical instrument and my style was too choppy and violent. So uh, we hired a synthesizer. And the old sort of synthesizer, which was more like a sort of Wurlitzer organ. Just, oh. What are you barking at, you stupid thing? So it was um that was the um, that was Xerox. So then I played in the Vols, which was another school punk band, which was my brother was the bass player. And then uh, Did you write any of your own songs? I guess you did. No, I don't think I can't remember. Well, so what kind of covers were you doing? We would have been doing the clash, we would have been doing well, anything loud and easy, really. Yeah. Um so and then I came to, well, then I went to Stratford-on-Avon to, stu- to do theatre studies. So then I started doing music for theatre, really, and that's what I, st- I was classically trained. I was a chorister when I was a kid, so I wrote, my first piece I wrote was a Magnificat for choir and snare drum. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first, my first, it wasn't published, but it was my first performed work, it was a Magnificat for, in A minor. For choir and snare drum with a big solo, which was mostly me. <laughs> oh, well, I did some settings of Shakespeare songs. You spotted snakes with double tongue, a four-part choir and piano. <laughs> Who were you on top of the pops with? Can you remember the, any of the groups when you and, the, and, and, and when the communards were on? Well, of course, those were the days when everybody was on top of the pop. So you got these fantastic collisions of cultures. So. I think we were on once with, like, Glenn Medeiros and the Stranglers or something. I can't remember, but who were we on with? Um, I definitely remember doing Glenn Medeiros and... Oh, God, it's a bit of a blur. I mean, it was... I mean, you were so bunkered on top of the pot. I mean, if we we would only be on if we had a record that was rising, right? So if you had a record that was rising, the people you were on with were competitors. Yeah. Even if you were allies in other ways. And I just remember on top of the pops, everyone used to stay bunkered in their dressing rooms. Yeah, it'd be a bit tense. There was sometimes a queue for a 20-piece styrofoam cup of coffee in the canteen, a very BBC way when you see somebody like Rod Stewart or Madonna queuing for a cup of coffee. Um, and then uh, and then you'd do your your thing. And the top of the pops itself was a... It was a yeah, everyone says it, but it, the studio wasn't actually very big. And you were on these dusty old rostra, and then this crowd of compliant teenagers were... Just pushed around, really. Absolutely. Heard yes. it hither and thither. Did you do it? I, no, I, 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 I went and watched it being done a, a few times. And what I can remember, I talk, talking about it the other day to Mark, is that the track was so quiet that you could hear the shuffling. Yeah, shuffle the feet. Jewelry yeah. of the jewellery of the dancers who were yeah. supposed to be in wild abandon. But, you know, it was, it was just it was very tense, obviously, yeah. is what I remember about it. The one I remember most vividly was... Well, I wasn't on, I wasn't on it, but I was watching it was Bronsky Beat's first Top of the Pops, which was Small Town Boy, it must have been about nineteen eighty-four. And Jimmy sang a live vocal. Remember there was a period when they occasionally didn't have a live vocal. And he was incredibly assured. And so there was Bronsky Beat, all my friends, standing on stage doing this thing, and then all of a sudden the smoke guns billowed and the fans whirred. And then on came Legs and Co. with like <laughs> marble denim and mullets doing this 
interpretive dance about <laughs> runways in London in the 1980s. So it was hilarious. Really. And Peter Powell, I remember going, you're not going to believe what these guys are all about. <laughs> I remember once doing the weirdest one. We were, it was when we did a record called Don't Leave Me This Way, which was number one. And so if you've got the number one record, well, then, of course, you own Top of the Pops rather than Top of the Pops own you. And I remember having to do it. We were on tour in Italy. We were number one. We had to fly back to the UK and we were all knackered and barely speaking. And we had to do Top of the Pops and Roland Rat on the same day. And Roland Rat was, was filmed in Teddington, I think. I just remember this big, stupid limousine. We landed at RAF Northolt, I remember, and this stupid limousine picked us up and just ferried us between Top of the Pops and Teddington. And this whole day was a blur of seeing Roland Rat being worked from behind, which destroyed many a cherished illusion, I have to say. <laughs> and, and then having to go to Shepherd's Bush and do Top of the Pops and then being put back on a plane and flown back to, I don't know, Naples, wherever it was. Yes, so it, right, it never, yeah. Inevitably, to do a puzzling Italian pop show. Yeah. It's, always, it's always there's that, isn't it? Well, the Italian pop show, there was a Spanish one. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Which was, uh, it was, I think it was in Madrid, might have been Barcelona, I'm not sure, where you had to get, it was just like, a, it was almost like, um, industrial unit on an industrial estate somewhere nondescript. It was a big Spanish show. And you had to go and do your song. You just mind it. But the audience were delinquent children. I think they literally got them from a, some young offenders institution. <laughs> and they all had like pea shooters and catapults. <laughs> just be kind of ballistically overwhelmed by the violence and hostility of these children. It was weird. Like the Bash Street Kids. So is that it was one like of the Bash Street Kids? Yeah. Is that one of your main memories about being uh, being a pop star? Is the kind of in, indignities involved in being a pop star? Well, 
Well, there aren't many, actually. I mean, there are some. Most of it is dignities, though. Most of the uh, times you're fated and spoiled. I mean, you do have to get up and do a show and all that. But um, I quite liked that, really. But um, but most of the time you live a strange... I mean, but when by the time we got to the sort of height of our career, it became a bit unmanageable. So we were sometimes sort of had to stay in hotels, not really leave the hotel because there would be kids outside, places like Italy and Spain. Um, the indignity sometimes when you went somewhere where you weren't famous, so you would right. be used to being treated like princes, and then you would go to, I don't know, Tallahassee or somewhere, and uh, the only person who was interested in you was a representative of the Ku Klux Klan who'd stick a burning <laughs> cross on the lawn outside your gig, that sort of thing. <laughs> I'm sure you're exaggerating uh, a bit there. Not uh, Not quite. <laughs> no, there were, I remember in America doing, in Texas doing an interview with a bloke who wanted to know why we were communists. I remember that was really the bulk of the interview, as I recall. Right, right. So tell us about your um, your kind of act, if we can call it that, that you do nowadays on your... Yeah, what can people expect? What can people expect to come and see you at the Shaftesbury Theatre on March the 11th? Well, I talk about myself for two hours, basically. <laughs> so it's great for me. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> And the audiences gratifyingly seem to like it. I grant them the concession of driving part two. So part two is uh, questions from them, which I attempt to answer. But it's um, borderline national trinket. So it was actually David, my late husband. So I, I was at this do, and um, somebody rather unctuously said that I was becoming a national treasure. And I sort of preened myself for a second. And he saw that. He, wasn't, he was from Manchester. He didn't like that sort of thing. So he said, you're a borderline national trinket through gritted teeth, and that's how that... So, so really, it's looking at how do you get to be a borderline national trinket? Um, uh, what are the foothills to national treasuredom like? And is there a ceiling to your ambitions to achieve national treasure status? And what's it? So that basically, it's, just, it's really a sort of a story about my life, really, um, which when you when you start trying to sort of talk about it, assumes a sort of narrative shape, really, because your life is just your life. Sorry, one damn thing after another. Um, but, well, I mean, I just realised that if if I someone sent me my CV, I would assume it to be the work of a fantasist and, you know, bin it. It seems so unlikely. Um, so I talk about that, really. But the thing that's good about it, and I think the reason why I've enjoyed it so much, well, partly it's just to talk about myself, but it's really, I'm talking to people who were there too, right? I'm talking to yeah. people for whom our band was one of the elements in the soundtrack of their youth. And we like to talk about that. We like to reconnect with that. We like also to talk about what our lives have been like and what's it like to be now. I mean, it's not just this, but quite a lot of people of my age, I'm 61, maybe 62, what it's like to be at the sort of retirement end of your life and look back and think, well, was it good? Was it bad? Was it mixed? Was it indifferent? Would I have done it differently? And it's the camaraderie, I think, of the over 60s that... Um, right, right. So, yeah, it's a, it's a fellow feeling between you and the... the well, I'm conscious I'm saying this. I don't want to alienate... <laughs> no, whole... any, anybody can come. <laughs> yeah. But I have an interesting case, some younger people coming who, who, well, some people know me from other things. Yeah. But actually quite some younger people who love 80s music. Right. It's been quite a thing, and I suppose they must hear the records from their parents or something. I got asked by these girls if they'd like to interview me, and they were like um, teenagers from sixth form in a school in Essex. 
And they said, we're really into 80s music. We'd love to interview you. And I said, okay. And they turned up and they just looked, they were literally wearing scrunchies. It looked like... Uh, <laughs> it was a banana yeah. rama. Well, exactly. And so yeah. they were so charming. And we talked and everything. And at the end, I said, so uh, what do you like about the 80s? And they said, well, we think the music was really original. It was powerful. It was interested in social change. And, uh, you know, it had a sort of honesty and a dynamic quality that's missing today. And I said, oh, who's your favourite? They all said Kylie. Still around. I saw her. I see her in the Albert Hall. Oh, really? Well, that was my last, my last big gig was Kylie in the Albert Hall. Was she good? Yeah, she was actually. She was phenomenal. I mean, it was a, a show which was so managed that absolutely nothing in it could possibly have gone wrong. But no. what I'd forgotten about Kylie, I mean, a Kylie icon, is actually she's a very, very fine singer. Right. So we had all this sort of big production stuff and everyone was screaming. And that was part of the invited celebrity pen. So she came out on a catwalk and it was basically, it's one of those things where it's like being in a sort of Madame Two Swords. You're sitting between, well, I was between Lenny Henry and Torville and Dean. And, <laughs> uh, and Kylie comes out and then she takes some highly scripted questions from her highly invited crowd. And... Uh, <laughs> But she just sang, she did a version of I Should Be So Lucky, just her and a piano. It was a sort of smoky barroom version, which was absolutely excellent. And I saw Pete Waterman with tears in his eyes. Extraordinary. Yeah. So how you, your, your kind of show, Yes, you say it follows the, the line of your life kind of thing. Does that mean you haven't got a script or anything like that? I mean, do you use no, visuals the, or? No, it's, it's just a chair and a lamp and me. And I come on and I just talk. And it's different every night, actually, because I go where um, fancy takes me, I suppose. And the reaction of the crowd, I think. And um, and then in the second half, part two, it's questions from them. So I have... Oh, right. one thing we do have is we, we have an iPad. And so people can text questions to me and I can read them on an iPad. So that's as far as technical <laughs> innovation. That's good. The first it- text I ever got... We, we trialled this in Horsham. And the first text I ever got, I only got one, and it was offering us 10 quid off our next EE package. <laughs> so you, presumably the, the vickering has helped prepare you to do this, to, to, to just go out on stage yeah. and, and just be able to talk for an hour, presumably, is what you have to do. Or 40 yeah, hours. I mean, I could easily talk for... I would be up there with Danny Baker. and I did a thing with Anne Dodd, Ken Dodd's widow, in Liverpool a little while ago, and she would talk about Ken, which would go on stage at seven and come off at midnight, and I thought, lightweight. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I went to see Danny. I don't know if you've seen his show, but it's yeah, he, he yeah. came on at 7.30 and left about half past 11. He'd only got to the age of 16. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But it was fascinating. Um, so who else have you seen? That's interesting. Danny's a really good example. Who else have you seen doing that kind of show that you thought was particularly good and who you Adam, might have kind of learnt from? Oh, uh, Adam Kay. Um, his show is very, very good. Also, he sings hilarious songs, which he plays on his little piano, which is very good. Um, Danny, uh, Grace and Perry, brilliant. Um we're doing another one. So I do this podcast. We've just started doing live shows for that too. Oh, yeah. With this, yeah. Is, yeah, you should talk about this. This is the, uh, what's it called? The Rabbit Hole Detectives. The Rabbit Hole yeah. Detectives. Very yeah. good. Um, 
But of course, the other thing is, if you are touring, and touring seems sort of endless, I started in September and I'll finish uh, in the middle of March. When I come home, I don't want to go out. I just want to catch up with box sets, really. Right. So, um, so I can't think who else I've seen. I don't really, right. I, don't, I don't get out much, basically, <laughs> especially when I'm on tour. But have you, I'm intrigued in the, about the vicaring. Have you ever met a shy vicar? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a terrible thing, actually. <laughs> if you look at the um, the kind of Myers-Briggs profile of clergy, something like 70% conform to the type, which basically means shy, and yet you are fated by your job to be sociable. So um, I don't conform to that type. You may be surprised here. So sort of talking to strangers is my favourite thing, really. Whereas for some vicars, it's mortifying. So they develop ways of doing it. And you've all, I mean, you, you will have known this from interview. There are people who don't particularly like being interviewed, but because yeah. they have to be, they work out a way of doing it. Uh, not a problem for me. But the trouble is, is that to do that, you need to evolve. They say when you are in training, vicar school, um, you develop your pulpit voice, and it means it's that public-facing voice, public-addressing voice that you have to do your job, and you hear it whenever you hear it. So I've had to kind of be aware of that and try not to lapse into my my pulpit voice because it's a different sort of thing. Although I, know, I was a very preachy pop star in my way and uh, a very sort of poppy vicar, I think. So. Right. <laughs> so how do you finish your shows? Have you got... A- is there a number at the end or anything like that? Or? I go out and sign books. Right. So uh, I go zip out into the foyer. And so they can't, they can't leave without going can't escape. <laughs> There's no escape. And I uh, and then the thing is, I so I zip out, but then I've joined the crowds of people leaving my own show and hear them talking about it because they don't <laughs> know I'm there. And, and then I sit behind a table and sign books for people. Right. Stuart Lee does that. He ends the show and there's a huge, great climax. And then he literally goes backstage and then runs out on the stage, jumps over the front, runs up the stalls and, and straight into the foyer where the pile of books is waiting. That's a very no, good way of doing it. Absolutely shameless about it. It's a really Quite good right. way of doing it. It's really yeah. good. So you know he's there. When you go past, he's still out of breath. You know? oh, I, have a, I have a hilarious way of getting people, alerting people to the possibility they have to buy one of my books. So they get, gets a laugh and then... Um, it's really interesting. One of, you mentioned it in when you um, in the introduction, but it, there is this circuit now, and I'm basically sandwiched between Marty Pello and John Lydon. <laughs> Dreams come true. Um, <laughs> so, so I keep wherever I am. They've just had John or Marty, or they're about to have John or Marty. John was coming to the Eric Walker Centre. I think the week after me. Um, so clearly, it's a buoyant sector. This, and it, it is. is. Yeah. It is. Uh, and, and I would love to do. It would be nice to do one where we actually got a group of people together on stage to do it together. Maybe that would be fun. No, well, there are whole package tours, aren't there? Of some eighties package tours. Have you ever done any of those? You no, know, never wanted to. Toyer do. and Hazel O'Connor to... and all. You know. Yeah. No, I prefer to talk. Really, I don't want to. I mean, we're on. We're asked constantly if we would like yeah. to reunite for a gig. We've always said no. Actually, I prefer to leave that where it yeah, yeah. belongs. Actually, I couldn't remember any of the songs either. Yeah. Um, but I'm. But that would be interesting. And also, I mean, it's like when you're on tour in the 80s, you're always on tour with the same... I remember we just constantly used to bump into Suzanne Vega and Pill. 
So you'd be staying at some, like the Britannia in Manchester, and there would be Suzanne Vega, and there would be John Lydon, and you would sort of talk. And occasionally, we used to bump into Frankie Goes to Hollywood, but our sax player got into a big fight with one of the guys, and that was difficult. <laughs> well, it's it's good to see that you can all still bump into each other out there, you know. Well, it's different now. I think the other thing is, you know, we're old campaigners, and I was doing a gig in, uh, where was it? Glasgow. And uh, afterwards, someone came up and said hello. And I said, I've met you before. And he said, yeah, I was... I mean, wet, wet, wet. And so it was just interesting that we had this nice talk. And and the interesting thing now is that we've... It's the nicest thing about being over 60 is the quality of your relationships. And if you haven't surrendered entirely to pessimism or bitterness or disappointment, I think it's good, but especially with people with whom you... I remember I bumped into, you know, Paolo Hewitt. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Well, I was at a do actually at Lambeth Palace of all places. And um and I saw Paolo there and I had a fallout with Paolo in the eighties. And we'd never spoken since. And um I couldn't anyway, I saw him, I thought it was ridiculous. So I went over to him and said, Oh, hello, Paolo. And he said hello. And I said, Look, I know we had a fallout. I can't remember what it was about. <laughs> and he said, Neither can I. And I said can we consider that behind us? And he said, yeah, of course. So we just had a really nice conversation. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. <laughs> and I had another another bump into a, a session musician who remained nameless, who I worked with, who was not the most generous of colleagues. And he said, I'm really sorry about how I was when we worked together. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. So that was... Well, I time, liked a great healer. But also that thing Shakespeare says about no longer desiring this man's art and that man's scope, okay? You stop looking at people as competitors or people who might steal your glory. And uh, and, and that's nice. I like that. Very mm. good. Very good. Well, Richard, it's been lovely to talk to you. Well, it's been lovely to talk uh, to you. And, um, you know, good luck with the tour, as Thank we you. used to say on the whistle test. Word down your way. Testing. Two, two. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.